0: So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 We continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 4 through 6. We've been in this passage the last few weeks as we've been kind of working through this statement of belief that Paul makes in those verses. We're going to be looking at the last section of that passage today. So as we come to God's word, let's go to him prayer and ask for his help with it let's pray our Lord Jesus as we come to your word we pray that you would help us with it we on our best days are still kind of wandering and meandering through your truth understanding it and then sometimes not understanding it applying it to our lives and sometimes even refusing to do so Because of our stubbornness, because of our desire to be on your throne and to make decisions for our lives. To be the one who is the one passing off the decrees. So Lord, we pray that you would help us. Because even though we want those things, they can never be true. You are the king of glory. So as we open your word and as we read from it, show us that truth. Change us so that we might more and more believe that truth. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So again, as we come to this passage, we have to remember that this was brought to us by the Apostle Paul and in the context of the church coming together as one body. And as we look in church history, we see some difficulty along the way, particularly in the beginning of the church's history. But as the church reached about the fourth century AD, the church was finally beginning to kind of breathe a sigh of relief. There was a, some persecutions there at the early part of that century called the Diocletian persecutions. They were ending and they were kind of the last and most severe of those early Persecutions in the early church and then it, Constantine became ruler of Rome and brought in Christianity into the whole empire. And so whereas at the beginning the church had spent a great deal running and hiding, now they could kind of deal with some more internal matters. What is it that these things that we believe and how can we write these things down so that we can know forever? So Constantine called a council in order to settle some of these doctrinal discussions that had arisen in that early church, namely the nature of God, specifically the nature of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. There was a priest by the name of Arius that had risen up and he believed that the Son of God was actually a created being, that Jesus was a created being and therefore not co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. And so this council met in 325 AD in order to condemn the heresy of Arius and affirm the true nature of God. God the Father and God the Son are the same substance, but eternally distinct. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, is indeed God. Why is this important? Few would say that the church councils of ancient history were unimportant, and most everybody believes that they were important, yet many today would say that these similar kinds of disputes really have no place in our church today. And in fact, the word doctrine is seen confining. To many. Well, we really shouldn't have this thing called doctrine because it really, really kind of nails us down to something, is what they'll say. Most people who call themselves Christian would also say that it's wrong to have a definitive statement of belief because who are we to say what one person should believe or not? They would say something like, if the culture changes, our beliefs should change along with it. Scripture's under attack as much as it's ever been today. Not more than ever, but as much as ever. And as Christians, we are called to uphold the truth of Scripture. We are called to believe in the truth of Scripture. So we'll consider the last of these one statements here in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 today. And as we do, we'll also consider what it is that the Apostle says that we should believe concerning these things. Which of these things must we Separate on and which of these things is there some room for discussion and debate on and so as we move through the text today i'll use those statements as talking points there are four that we're going to look at today one lord one faith one baptism and one god and father over all so with that let's look together at the text ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 through 6 please stand with me in the honor of the reading of god's holy word Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So again, as we come to the text, just a reminder, uh, this is the kind of the grand design of this letter. Paul's instructing believers on their common salvation. He spent the first couple chapters explaining how that salvation comes about, there, that we as believers, or, as, or were formerly unbelievers, had this common inability to save ourselves. And we needed a Savior, and that Savior is also common to us all. And then he goes on to name a couple of groups that were considering whether or not these things are actually common to us all, the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, this is something that they too had in common. They were unable to save themselves, and they needed a Savior, and that only possible Savior is Jesus Christ. And so as we move into these doctrinal distinctives, particularly concerning baptism, which is what a lot of people you know, are kind of thinking, well, what do we believe about that. Well, we just had a baptism, so how do we unite around that? I think it's important for us to understand where we should divide and where we can agree to disagree. In terms of the common Lord and the common salvation in the Lord, we divide with those who disagree with that. But in terms of the nuances of baptism, of course, we can disagree with someone who may Disagree with the way that we do baptism or what we believe concerning baptism because we still have a common Lord who saves both of us. This is important in a day when doctrine is less important to many. It's as important as ever to know where we stand on the essential doctrines of our faith and be able to defend them and, and talk about them from Scripture. Not only, again, having a stance, but as we the world asks questions, even as those in the church asked questions we should be able to articulate our belief not only with the believing world but also with the unbelieving world and that brings us to the first point one lord and this one lord that paul speaks of is concerning our lord jesus christ the word lord here is the word in greek this is significant because this is the same word that is used throughout the septuagint septuagint which is basically the Greek Old Testament. This is the Old Testament that many of the scholars would have read from, including the Apostle Paul. That was his Old Testament. And any time the personal name for God is used, Yahweh in the Hebrew, the word Kyrios is used to replace that. The New Testament writers chose this word specifically to point to the deity of Christ. I'll give you an example. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, we read these words. Everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. Go back to the Old Testament and read that in Hebrew. It's talking about Yahweh calling upon God to save them. Whoever calls upon God will be saved. Well, in Romans chapter 10, we have something very similar. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, please. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13. And again, consider what we just mentioned. we quoted from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. One of the minor prophets in the Old Testament concerning that passage, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel existed long before our Lord Jesus did, at least physically on this earth. And here, Paul writes to the Roman church. Verses 9 through 13 of Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And you believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. We just got through talking about this in Ephesians. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord... Will be saved. Paul is an Old Testament scholar, if there ever was one. Paul quoting Joel 2.32 to refer to Jesus, the God of the Old and New Testament. Paul is equating Jesus with every time we read the word God in the Old Testament, from Genesis 1.1, he is referring to Jesus, not specifically but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is implied there. This term Lord for Jesus that we read here in Paul's works, including that in Ephesians chapter 4, isn't simply a term of honor and respect. But he is called Lord because he is the God of the universe. He's the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, no less God than God the Father and God the Spirit. The writers of the Nicene Creed, which came out of that early church council in 325 A.D., said this of Jesus. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. These men of ancient days left no room for error there, studying the very thing the Bible teaches concerning God the Son, Jesus Christ. He is God. Why can't we disagree on this? Jesus is the only way to the Father. He said this himself explicitly in John 14. Believing on another way to the Father then, disagreeing with the second person of the Trinity, whom the the writers of the New Testament call God, earns you eternal damnation. Believing that Jesus isn't what he says he is is not an alternative path unless that alternative is hell. And understand, this isn't just me being mean. This is what the Word says. We have a lot of faith today that would kind of be Arianism repackaged. I'll give you a couple of examples. And again, this isn't to throw these people under the bus or anything like that, but understand that there are many who would call Jesus something else and then say, yeah, we we all believe the same things. Mormonism is an example of this. Jesus is God, but He became God. He was created just like you and I. Jesus and the Father are separate, not co-eternal and of the same substance, but are two separate gods all together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not a Christian belief. This is not something that we can just simply disagree on and, and continue to hold hands together and both claim to be Christians. One of those groups is completely wrong and it happens to be the one that is saying things that are opposed to the words that Jesus himself said Mormons are not Christians because they do not believe in the Christian God this is the same for Jehovah's Witness this is the same for Oneness Pentecostals and other like others like them now hear me understand what I'm saying we don't now throw rocks at these people that's not what, what we're saying here we, don't, we disagree with you therefore we don't like you that is not a Christian behavior at all We can still love them and care for them. I have friends that are Jehovah's Witness. I love them and care for them. But we do not have a common Lord. They know it. They know it. Trust me. They acknowledge it. So when we we choose not to, we do a disservice to them. And honestly, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are being deceitful. In my experience with the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons in particular, they are great people. And they really do see themselves as right. And so I respect their passion. I respect their conviction. But I do not agree with them. And whenever they want to discuss what they believe, and they do a lot, and that's that's to their credit, I always bring up Jesus. In fact, that's where I start the conversation and end the conversations. Because what you believe about Jesus, hear this. Has eternal significance. It's no small matter. So when those folks come to your door, and they will, be nice. Please. Admire their passion. Compliment them on the fact that they're out sharing what they believe. But tell them about Jesus. Because they do not believe in Him. They do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible, and that is the only, and He is the only way to the Father. That brings us to the second point, one faith. The Bible tells us of faith, though faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We're going to read from that in Hebrews 11 in just a moment. We have one faith because there's one giver of faith, God the Father. We've already discussed that as we went through Ephesians chapter two. We read that in Ephesians chapter two verse eight, that grace through faith is a gift of God. Why is it a gift of God so that no man can boast? The reason that I have faith to give him is because he gave it to me in the first place. We have a little bit more about faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn with me there and we'll read the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is oftentimes called the hall of faith, which I think is a sad distinction. Because it makes us pattern our lives after the people there, but the only thing we have in common with the people there is that they were given the same gift of faith that we were. We should worship the giver of faith and not the ones who had it. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made, it was not made out of things that are visible. By faith offered, or by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts and through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This is his gift to us. We read that those people were commended because of their faith. And that faith was a gift that was given to them by God. That faith is a belief not only in the existence of God, understand what the writer of Hebrews was saying, but that God has a relationship with man that is bound up in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's because of this... That he rewards us. Our faith in Jesus is something that we have because of him, and now we can use it in order to trust and rely on him. Our faith doesn't grant us any special powers, but it helps us to rely on the one who has all the power. We can't create our own reality with faith. We've talked about this, but we rely on the one creator. This is the opposite of what you hear so many talking about anymore, that we are somehow able to pull ourselves up, that we can make ourselves able to believe in the first place rather than God making us alive in Christ Jesus our Lord, that our faith is able to somehow regenerate us. And then now we can use that faith to somehow activate God. And I'm amazed at the times that if you just search for these phrases, the things that you'll see and read under them, a popular view says that our faith activates God's power and that if we just plug in to God's power, that's another one that I see a lot of today, if we just plug in to God's power, that good things will happen as if we're like appliances and God is like an outlet that we just need to go and plug into. God isn't waiting on us to say the right words or to do the right things in order to unlock His mercies in our lives. God isn't something that we plug into. He cannot be tapped into just when we need Him. I need a little bit more God in my life and then I'll be just fine. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is never a time when we do not need faith. Not because God might not act this time if I don't somehow show him something but because we know that he will and that we trust that he is doing what is right and good in our lives and it's when we don't do that when we want to claim our own power and ability to do these things that we divide and we see that in the early church as we read through the book of acts the belgian confession which is another confession for unity the belgian confession is one of the three forms of unity Article 22 says this concerning our faith. We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Ghost, kindleth in our hearts an upright faith which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. The gift of faith that we have from God is something that we in Christ necessarily give back to God. And for many in the New Testament, the first sign of that new faith was to identify with the visible church by being baptized. And that brings us to the third point, one baptism. Now as we read this passage here in verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we have to make the assumption here that Paul is referring to water baptism. I guess it could refer to the fact that all believers are baptized into one body, what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But the baptism of the Spirit and the sacrament of water baptism are so closely tied together, there's no real need to separate them in this way. Baptism is a sign of something beyond itself. We had a baptism here this morning and I spoke of that very plainly. We we call it a sign because it's a picture of of a covenant that God has made with His people. The washing of sin by the Spirit and our, our engrafting, to be a part of the body of Christ. It's also a seal because it represents the Spirit's work in our life and a guarantee that God will carry out the things that are represented by this promise. To understand baptism, we have to go first back to the Old Testament. I encourage you to read Genesis 17 for your own understanding and study this week. But in Genesis 17, just to summarize it, God establishes the sign of circumcision with Abram which he was to have the people of God circumcised. And from that point forward, we see this sign, a recognition that God truly desired circumcision of the heart, that this sin would be removed from the people of God. And circumcision was to recognize that. Well, Paul continues this idea as he writes his letter to the Colossians. And Todd read from this portion this morning and explains how the sacrament of circumcision is brought forward into the New Testament With the sacrament of baptism. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at that passage today. Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. Verse 11 says this. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Understand, he's he's alluding to this fact that the, the circumcision of our heart is something that was made without hands. Not something we did, but something that was done for us. And notice the connection he's about to make. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism... In which you were also raised with him through faith in the power of the full and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, this is—you can see that he's wrote the same things here, right? And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having Forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Almost sounds like he was rewriting Ephesians chapter 2 there for a lot of that. But notice what he did there. He describes the sign of circumcision as a putting off of the body of flesh. This is what's actually happening physically when circumcision happens, but it's pointing forward to a spiritual reality, this removal of sin that only Christ could bring. That this this circumcision represented something that they were looking forward to. It was a sign of things to come. And so then in verse 12, we see the same symbolism being buried in baptism, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, but you were raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God He raised you from the dead. That baptism represents our putting off of the old self and raising up with the new. And this sign, baptism, is not just for the males, but for the females. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And this is a bloodless, painless sign. Because these are things that Jesus took upon Himself. And so who should be baptized? In Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Peter says, Repent and be baptized. And he's preaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Not only is this promise for you, but this promise is also for your children. And this is something we still do. Just like with the Old Testament, that was a sign that those people were indeed covenant people of God. It was; it did not save them, but it identified them with the covenant people of God. In fact, it put, it put on them more responsibility. You know, for those who have been baptized, for those who are currently hearing the word preached, there's more responsibility associated with that because that baptism rec- recognizes that you are a part of the covenant community of God and with that comes this grace that isn't coming anywhere else. We talk about the means of grace in the preaching of God's word and in the sacraments. Well, the the kids who are here who have been baptized are receiving that means of grace by being here. As being a part of the covenant family, you are hearing the word preached. You are seeing the sacraments of God. You are being a part of the fellowship and the prayer. It's a sign that identifies us with the covenant community. The visible church. Someone is baptized, the community recognizes that person as part of that community. When a child is baptized, before they become a believer, the community commits to raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Again, baptism does not save. Because over and over in the New Testament, we have learned that something that you do cannot save you. Salvation happens to us. It even happens in spite of us. We were once dead in our trespasses and our sins. So when someone is congratulated for being baptized, what does that mean? It means that we kind of inherently believe that this is something that we decided and something that we do on our own. But understand, brothers and sisters, someone who was dead in their trespasses makes no decisions other than to be children of wrath sons and daughters of disobedience, but because of Christ's work in our life, we are his people. And baptism shows us that, both in ourselves and in our children. But understand this, I recognize that the belief that I just stated is different than many, even in this part of the country. And so this isn't something that we divide on. There's probably even some in this church that don't agree with what I just said. And that's totally fine. We do not need to divide on this. We can disagree with our doctrines on baptism, but that does not mean that we disagree on Jesus. We can disagree on baptism, but we both can understand that baptism is not something that saves us. Jesus is. And so we agree on that. And so that is the important thing. Baptism is one of those things that we can... Have nuance on, of course, you know, there is some distinction there, but, uh, in general, this is not something that we necessarily have to divide on. That brings us to the next point, one God and Father of all. This is seemingly the least controversial of Paul's statements that he's made. However, consider the context. Consider the context for those Christians in the early church as they were being asked to bow down to the pagan gods of Rome and to Caesar, who fashioned himself as a god. And if they didn't, they would face certain death. Christians by the thousands were murdered because they refused to acknowledge any other god but the God of Scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's easy to see why the men of the Council of Nicaea fought so adamantly for the doctrines of our faith because so many died to preserve them. But what about for us? Living today in this country where we're free to worship whomever and whatever we will. It's important because people will call just about anything God today because we all worship something or somebody. Paul says that God is over all and through all and in all. God is completely unavoidable in his creation. He is able to be known from it even by the unregenerate sinner who cannot deny that there is a God as they look out at the creation. They know there's a God, yet they deny him anyway, and they turn to their own God, which ultimately is just themselves. God will not share his throne. That has been a fact since Genesis chapter 3, even Genesis 1, the first commandment that he gave us. You shall have no other gods before me. And he means it. All sin is derived from the idea that we think God isn't who He says He is and that perhaps that throne would look a whole lot better if we were sitting in it. In fact, sin is basically man shaking his fist at God saying, your throne is my throne now. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, the unbeliever lives in the constant state of this. One day, God will leave No stone unturned as he passes judgment down upon those who lay claim to his throne. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus, God, the son came down to earth for the sole purpose of becoming sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It requires your faith, but he will give it to you. Call upon him today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we worship one God and Father. We worship one Lord, Jesus Christ. We worship one Spirit, and we have one great word passed down to us, the very words of God before us. Let us endeavor to hold them dear, to learn them, to teach them, to understand them, Anything from us, anything outside of his word will only ever divide us. And so let us rely on Christ alone for our salvation. Let us seek out his word that we might be unified and that the world may know the name of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you. We pray just that for the church here in this building, but not only here in this building, but we pray for the church here in our community that we would be unified under the name of Jesus Christ. That though we have some doctrinal distinctions, we all agree that Jesus Christ is the only Savior for sinners. Lord, help us to be unified Not for our own glory, but so that your name would be praised. So that the unbeliever would call upon your name and be saved. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. This time, please stand with me as we sing our response to God's word.